Who will win stage 17 of the Tour de France atop the Col de Portet? Will it be the yellow jersey, Tadej Pogacar? Or will it be someone from a breakaway? I bet you know because you're a dedicated cycling fan. And if you think you know, you should play our Velo News Tour de France Stage Winner Challenge. That's right. Every day, you can pick the winner of the stage. And if you're correct, you can win an Outside Plus membership. And you will be entered to win the grand prize, a specialized SL7 Tarmac racing bike. All you have to do is go to velonews.com forward slash pick. That's velonews.com forward slash P-I-C-K. You can pick the winner for tomorrow's Tour de France stage. And if you choose wisely, you will win. Uh, You'll be entered to win some cool goodies. So again, velonews.com forward slash pick. Velonews.com forward slash pick. It is our Tour de France stage winner challenge. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday morning here at the home offices. We just watched stage 16, a rainy stage through the Pyrenees. Pretty hilly, some good attacks on the mountains. And uh, we saw Patrick Conrad win the second stage for Bora Hansgrohe, bringing the German t- team some something to cheer about after Peter Sagan left with his knee injury. And oh boy, news coming out that Sagan is going to miss the Olympics now to get some surgery on his knee, which is a bummer. Uh, Got a good podcast coming up today. We're going to break down some of the action and also what's going on in the battles for some of the other jerseys at this year's Tour de France, that being polka dot white jersey and green jersey with Cy Vaucher. Second half of the show, I have Brent Bookwalter back on the podcast to offer some of his analysis and takes on the 2021 tour. Brent's at a training camp now, but he has been watching the race and uh, no doubt has some takes and perspective on what he's been seeing on his TV. But before we get to Brent, my co-host today, she is coming to us from Mark Cavendish's uh, home away from home away from home, of course, that being the Isle of Man. It's our Isle of Man correspondent, Cy Vaucher. Hello, Cy. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Sav, I feel like this has been a very busy month on the Isle of Man, not only with Mark Cavendish uh, tying Eddie Merckx's record, making history, but the unveiling of the Bee Gees statue. Um, First of all, like, what can you tell us about how people on the Isle of Man have been reacting to the Bee Gees statue being unveiled? Uh, I think they're pretty excited. Actually, yesterday, yes, I don't know, was it yesterday? I can't remember now. I've lost track of the days. Uh, I was in town anyway, and uh, there's already people getting their taking selfies with it. You know, thumbs up next to it. They're actually quite excited about having the the statue there. I, I think it's because it's a very good looking statue. You sh- you sent me the picture, and like the actual statue of the brothers Gibb look, you know, it it's a very flattering statue. It's of them from the Stan Alive video. Uh, nothing like the old Cristiano Ronaldo pinched face statue. Like I think they actually captured them quite well. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously the concern that it's going to end up like that, and it's just going to haunt haunt our nightmares for, for days and years to come, which that Cristiano Ronaldo bust does. It's utterly terrifying. But thankfully, the it was the same guy that did the Beatles statue in Liverpool that did this. So he seems to be a pretty decent uh, statue maker. I don't know what you call them. But um, yeah, the it turned out well. 
Now, what are there? Are there plans for a Cavendish statue? Is there already a Cavendish statue? I have to feel. I have to imagine that the the Isle of Man has already either memorialized him or has plans to memorialize him in you know bronze or iron or whatever coming up. There's there's been an awful lot of talk about that actually in uh, in the Manx media over the last few days. Um, there's a few people who have been calling for a a, a Mark Cavendish statue, um, which would be great. And I'm not sure where they would put it. Maybe in Laxey, which is where he's from. It's just up the coast from where the the uh, BG statue is. Um, and also somebody is has put out the the idea of maybe uh, renaming uh, a road or a, somewhere after Cavendish. They're calling it Cavendish Way. Oh. Not too many crashes on Cavendish Way, you know? Always safe sprinting. You might get yelled at, though. <laughs> just Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll definitely get yelled at, but that's just the way we are here. Oh, love it. I love these dispatches from the Isle of Man. All of our listeners across the United States now are familiar with and are, like, up to date on the comings and goings of the Isle of Man. Uh, before we get off the Isle of Man, though, proverbial and literally, it sounds like there is potentially a watch party in the works in the Isle of Man for the final stage of the Tour de France. Sounds like all of the uh, Manxers are potentially going to congregate to watch their local hero do battle on the Champs-Élysées. Yeah, well, who cares about a pandemic? But yeah, no, there's uh, there's going to be a, a fan zone, is what they're calling it, um, this weekend. I think Cavendish fever has is reaching fever pitch here on the Isle of Man, um, you know, and it's it's actually I've been quite surprised. I don't I don't think I've ever felt this amount of excitement about what Cavendish has been has done in the past. I mean, people have always followed him, and you know, when it, whenever he's in the tour, you'll get people who will know nothing about cycling, never watch cycling, and suddenly start talking about it. But this year has been has been something else. I have to say. Well, I love it. In the last two episodes then of the Villainous podcast, we have examined how the global accolades of stars have resonated back home uh, with Cavendish fever taking over the Isle of Man. And then um, in Monday's podcast, talking with uh, John Livingston from the Durango Herald, talking about how Sepkositis, Cusitis has taken over Durango and everyone is just dancing in the streets because their local hero uh, won a stage of the Tour de France. I have some cab questions, though, Sive, because you just wrote a, a story for VelaNews.com analyzing this battle for the green jersey. And I will be the first to admit, like when the Tour de France gets rocking and rolling, I am hyper-focused on the yellow jersey and stage wins and stuff like that. And I often lose sight of the polka dots and the green jersey. And I've just kind of assumed up to this point that Mark Cavendish had a stranglehold on the green jersey because he's already won four stages. Uh that may not be the case. Uh, take us inside the battle for green and how this battle has kind of, the dynamics have shifted a little bit in the last few days. Yeah, I, like you said, with, with Cavendish winning four stages and just kind of being that big presence in the sprints, you kind of make that natural assumption that he's like miles ahead of the rest of the competition. But actually, he's only got a 37-point lead in the um, the green jersey competition um, because Michael Matthews, who's obviously not as strong of a sprinter as Cavendish, but it can kind of get up there and collect some points in the sprint finishes, has been kind of chipping away over the last kind of week 
getting in getting in some early breakaways, trying to get those intermediate points. And today he went um, all the way. He didn't get the win, which would have got him um, a few extra points. I think he lost out on an extra eight points by not getting the win today. But he's been kind of up there and at it. And yeah, it's uh, it's just making that certainty over the green jersey just a little less certain, um, which kind of adds a little bit more of, um, excitement into it. Obviously, a stage win for Cavendish um, in either of the next two sprint stages is worth 50 points. So it's still heavily weighted towards Cavendish. But Michael Matthews is doing his... Uh, his best to try and make sure that it's not going to be an easy win. Right. And it sounds like, I mean, it looks like Sonny Cobrelli is making a bit of a push too. He's pretty far down, but like Matthews, Cobrelli is in the mold of the sprinter who can also survive mountains and therefore goes on the attack. And I mean, this is, these guys are both following the Peter Sagan model of tackling the green Jersey, which is to go on the attack intermediate sprints, you know, um, be a versatile sprinter who can also climb. We saw Tor Hushoved follow this model as well. And I know that the Tour de France has kind of tweaked the points competition in recent years to sort of weigh to kind of, to kind of combat that and make it more about the bunch sprints. Um, so it sounds like, um, the battle that we have brewing is very much just like two different models of riders trying to go for it. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting to see the the two different approaches. the The last time the tour tweaked the um, the points distribution was in two thousand and nineteen, kind of in an attempt to try and relinquish that stranglehold that Sagan had on it because he was so dominant in that competition for so long. Um, and one of the ways that they've done that is by obviously they've increased the number of points that a rider can get for winning a flat sprint stage. But what they've also done is they've slightly reduced the number of points that somebody coming second can get. So it means that, you know, if you win a sprint stage, you're going to get a significantly larger advantage. In fact, the gap, between first uh, place on a sprint stage and second place on a sprint stage is the maximum number of points available in an intermediate sprint, 20 points. So it's it does weigh it significantly towards the, um, the sprint stages, which is why Cavendish has led this competition since stage four, since his first win. But um, yeah, uh, it's, it's nice to see Matthews and Colbrelli even though Colbrelli is like 89 points, I think it is now behind Cavendish and almost doesn't stand a chance. But at the same time, you never know if Cavendish kind of misses the time cut over the next two days or something happens. And who knows, maybe it seems unlikely that Cavendish won't win at least one of the next two sprint stages. But yeah, it's nice to see them still having a go and not kind of just giving up. Yeah, and I mean, it's very much... um... You know, it was very much like you said, a response to Sagan. And we saw uh, Sam Bennett famously take the green jersey in 2020 because he was winning those stages and was, you know, very evidently the top sprinter. I wonder if at some point there will be a shift back. You know, the cycling likes to tweak its rules, not completely like overhaul them. But I do wonder if at some point we will see tweaking back in the other direction to like give more of an advantage or to draw things maybe a little bit more even to the breakaway guys. Cause I actually think this, it tends to be a pretty thrilling competition because, you know, we're recording this after stage 16 and stages 17 and 18, both big mountain stages, 
the types of mountain stages where you would expect to see Cobrelli and Matthews go on the attack early and Cavendish go in the Gruppetto to, uh, you know, you know, not challenge for those points. So I think if they want to boil, uh, to bottle up the tension around green, the green jersey, I do wonder if there will be some tweaking in the future to not maybe not weigh uh, bunch kicks quite so heavily. Yeah, I think there'll definitely be some tweaking. I don't think there's any kind of perfect formula to these competitions. Um, and I mean, to be honest, I think the for the formula before 2019 was was a nice one. It, we just happened to have a rider that was incredibly strong and that nobody could could match. Um, and that's why they've tweaked it. But in you know, if you've got a balanced field that sort of formula I think works a bit better than, than this one now. Maybe it would have been different if um, we still had Caleb Ewan um, or, you know, Tim Merlier in the race, but them's the apples we got. So, you know, that's, that's what we've got to deal with. Now, as interesting as the fight for green is, the fight for polka dot is even more compelling because we have like real, real heavy duty star power going for this one. Um, that's not to say that uh, Michael Matthews and Sonny Cobrelli are not stars, but eh, the gap is a little bit bigger in that. So right now, as it stands after stage 16, Wout Poles is in the polka dot jersey uh, with 74 points. But you know, right behind him is Michael Woods, 66 points, who wore it briefly. And then Nairo Quintana and Wout Van Aert are both right in uh, nipping distance with 64 points. So you have... You know, one, two, three, four big stars of the sport, GC riders, classic skies, you know, grand tour winners, all uh, battling for this polka dot jersey, which, look, in years past, the polka dot has not really ever compelled me, like the, the battle for polka dots. Uh, but this year, with, with such a strong lineup of guys chasing it and us heading into the Pyrenees with such an even battle right now, I mean, you just know that all four of the, well, you know that Wout Poles, Michael Woods, and Nairo Quintana will definitely attack into the breakaways. Wout Van Aert, he may be held back to help Jonas Vinga go with the Grand Tour or with the uh, the GC battle. But you can bet that those three guys are going to go into the breakaways and they're going to be fighting for these points available at the summit, which I think is pretty cool because in some of these Pyrenean stages at this point in the race, yeah, you kind of turn it on for the end of the stage, but there's not a ton of reason to watch like all. 180 kilometers or whatever but uh now there definitely is what what's your take on the fight for polka dot this year it's been brilliant i mean the um the stages before the rest day it was fantastic to see quintana poles woods battling out proper climbers which like the the polka dot jersey can be a strange one sometimes because if you get a rider who's um you know, willing to just go in the breakaway on like some really random stages and go in day in, day out. They can pick up enough mountains points that you know, the the bigger climbs aren't too much of a concern for them and they end up actually being dropped on some of the big climbs, which is I think a bad kind of symbol to send when like your mountains jersey wearer is being dropped out the the back end of the peloton on like a first cat climb. So it's nice to see some proper climbers duking it out for this competition. Um, I think perhaps the early crashes in the first week, first couple of days has really had an impact on this. Obviously, 
if Jack Haig was still in the race, what polls would be working, probably working for him. Uh, Michael Woods was obviously going in for GC, um, but he lost like millions of minutes in the first couple of stages. So he, he was well out of contention. Um, Naira Quintana is a bit of a, a weird one. He decided to kind of come in and look for stages this year rather than go on the GC hunt. So that he's a bit of an anomaly, but um, I think those early crashes in, in the first week have shaped this competition and has made it a really good competition. Naira Quintana is a weird one is like the, you know, that, that get that on a t-shirt that is applicable in every different, at every tour de France, you know, Oh, what's Naira Quintana doing? Ah, he's a bit of a weird one. Uh, no, but that is interesting with the backstories with all these guys. Cause you're right. Like these are all strong riders who under normal circumstances would be brought to bear on a GC run or like, you know, maybe stage wins or have ambitions of their own. And that goes out the window and all of a sudden the polka dot Jersey is there. And I have felt like that in the years past of the polka dot jersey it's sort of it's like the vuelta you know it's like the consolation prize for the guys whose gc run goes totally sideways or it's for like the french hero who is really trying to like win points back home um but for other people it's kind of a oh i'm in polka dot that's great i i go i go on the podium now that that is cool um I don't want to uh, underestimate how important the polka dot jersey is. I mean, it, careers are made, careers are made and lost in the in the fight for polka dot. But as we look at it, heading into tomorrow's stage seventeen, which goes over three or two big cat ones before the summit finish at the Col de Portet, um, ton of points on available tomorrow. So you can expect to see these guys going on the attack. This stage is. Um, an elongated carbon copy of the 2018 stage that finished up at the Col du Portet, where that day we started in Bagnères de Luchon and went right up the Col de Parasord, then the uh, Col de Valeron Azé, and then the finish at uh, Col de Portet. This one, this time, they're giving them a bit more warm-up road to do that. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. And then stage 18. Uh, another big mountain stage that is finishing to lose already dead. Not quite the knockout punch that uh, the Col de Portet has, but it's a big, long grinder, and it's coming after the Tourmalet. So that's sort of the that's the classic tour grind it out, big, long climbs. And so uh, polka dot riders are definitely going to be going it because a lot of points um, up for grabs then. And the GC, I mean, these two stages will have a huge impact on the final podium. Um, you know, Tade Pogacar has looked bulletproof up to this point. I don't think anyone is like, well, you know, like he might lose yellow, which of course he might. It's Tour de France. Everywhere, you know, crazy stuff happens. But as we look at the GC, like these two days are definitely going to arrange the GC. And, you know, one of the, the compelling stories that I've thought about with the GC, so I've has been a like the the randomness of second place on GC where it's like Ben O'Connor's there, oh he's gone, and then you know uh, Guillaume Martin is in there. It's sort of like Pogacar has used these breakaways and the second place to be like fine, you know, guy in breakaway, he's up the road, you can get there and see what happens to you. Um, but it's been this guessing game of like Uran, Vingago and Carapaz because they're all within what 30 they're they're within like 15 seconds of each other 
and there's three of them and there's two spots on the podium. And so someone is going to get SOL. <laughs> yes. At some point there is going to probably be this slight flip um, where the riders behind Pogacar are going to just start looking at themselves and start worrying about, um, you know, who's around them. I think Carapaz probably more so than the others because he does not have a time trial on him. Um, you know, to be kind to him, he does not have a time trial. Um, whereas Vingago, he finished like third, I think, in the stage five time trial. So he's going to be fairly confident that even if he loses a little bit of time, he's going to be able to overhaul whoever's in front of him. Um, Iran sort of in the middle ground, he's got a decent time trial, but it's not as strong as Vingago and definitely not as strong as Pogacar. Um, it's, yeah, it will be interesting to see when when that happens, if that happens um, on the, the first of these two big mountain stages or or on the second. Um, but yeah, it's gonna there's going to be a few kind of last throws of the dice. And in terms of, yeah, those weird second places. I wrote something on this yesterday that, you know, the the way that UAE have controlled the race or not really controlled the race, they've sort of just let things play out. They haven't, you know, it's it, it's like the polar opposite of um, Ineos or Team Sky who like had this iron grip on the race. Um, and like I have a firm memory of, um, Steve Cummings going in the breakaway and be, being on one of those stages where we thought it was going to be a breakaway day and Ineos or Sky at the time went, nah, we're gonna, we want to win this and brought it all back. Um, yeah, UAE have, they don't really seem overly interested in trying to get stages or like pull back big breakaways and they're not too concerned with who goes in the breakaway as long as it's not any of the guys immediately behind. Although to be honest, I think even then, they would just be like, meh, we'll, we'll pull them back. We'll, you know, we'll see what happens because it's such a large gap. Yeah, they just seem to be kind of, I don't know, it's weird. I don't know if it's because they're inexperienced or if they just don't care. I just don't think they have the legs. I think they know their strengths and weaknesses and they look at their lineup and they're like, okay, guys, hey, we're good. We're good class riders, but day in, day out, like keeping this thing at two minutes. Are you kidding me? Like we do not want to completely explode day 16 to this year's Tour de France. I've loved it. I have personally loved it. It's reminded me of the Giro. You know, you like, you watch some of these like deep into the Giro stages and everyone's just on their hands and knees. And all of a sudden every day is to break away day. And the team that's controlling GC is just like, get out of here, guys, attack. Please go up the road. We can just ride easy tempo and like, you know, we're not going to put an iron, you're, we're not going to have this race in an iron grip. And I, I, I have appreciated, cause I'm like you, I mean, I watched those sky years and you kind of got the feeling like, oh, well, just breakaways are never going to succeed at the Tour de France. It's like, this is the grand tour where break all breakaways are doomed. You know, like we know what's going to happen. And now to have this year's Tour de France where it's like, yeah, 10 minute gap. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's been it's been weird. Like I don't remember a Tour de France quite like it. Like even last year, Jumbo Visma were the same. You know, they were maybe not quite in the same way as um, they weren't quite as ruthless, but they still tried to keep everything really contained. Um, but even, although I mean, you said you know the go up the road, you know we'll we'll take it easy. But the, some of the stages this year, uh, it's taken so long for things to settle down 
like that nobody gets to take it easy. Um, you know, today took pretty long to to play out the two stages over the weekend. Like one of them, I think it was one. Yeah, it took like half the day before anything that resembled a breakaway got away. Um, and so Bogachar doesn't seem to mind. Um, he he seems to be quite happy to to ride like that. I mean, he's he's young, so he's a bit more sprightly than maybe some of the other riders. He's got a little bit more um, recovery in him. Full of beans, as they say, full of beans. Um, when you look at these three then who are battling for the podium, Uran, Vingago, and Carapaz, um, who do you think it would mean the most to to be on the podium? I mean, I would say... Vingago, because, you know, this is his first Tour de France, um, you know, and he's uh, he's really stepped up to the plate. You know, he's young. Um, he's not been in this situation before. So, yeah, I think uh, I think it would mean a, a lot for him. Um, or it's, but it's the Tour, so it's, you know, everybody wants to get up there. Um, yeah, I think maybe in... I would say in some ways maybe Ineos would be like, uh, we, you know, it's okay. We we won it like a ton of times, and we'll just come back and win it next year. But at the same time, they uh, they would want to save face a little bit because they came in with like this brute force Galacticos team, um, and they've done bugger all. <laughs> they've done a great job of controlling the peloton on a few stages, but didn't have anything to show for it. Uh, I'm with you. I think with Urad, it could be interesting because on one hand, you're like, wow, well, he's been second to the Tour de France, but so, you know, another podium doesn't really mean a whole lot. But now that he's long in the tooth and kind of end of his getting closer to the end than to the beginning, it could be one last sort of one last stand at the OK Corral, a nice little feather to put in your cap on your way out the door to be able to say, you know, hey, I rode a really smart, complete race and finished on the podium in one of my last Tours de France, and I can ride off, I can salsa dance off into the sunset uh, and, like, you know, do whatever Rigoberto Iran does <laughs> involving social media and dancing and music and being very, very happy. Yeah, I, I think this is probably one of his last chances to... Um, to get on the podium. And this is a course that's really well suited to him as well with that balance between the climbs and the time trials, because uh, yeah, it, it does, it suits him, suits him well. So it's, I can't see him kind of making another Tour de France podium after this. Iran has been my, Iran and Kelderman have been kind of my barometers for um, the speed of the front group in this Tour de France. You know, there's been a lot made about, oh, Tadej Pogacar has this huge gap and he's just crushing everybody. And uh. But there have been some of these stages where I've looked at, like, you know, the front group and some of these final days, and I'm like, you know, Iran looks pretty good in there, and so does Wilco Kelderman. And uh, there have been times in the last few years where, like, those guys are getting shot out the back midway out the climb or, like, three-quarters of the way up the climb. So... The fact that those guys are still there, and hey, I get it. They're smart riders. They're they're fit riders. They're they're great. It's sort of like maybe the f- speed of the front group in some of these dynamic mountain stages isn't exactly where it's been in years past. It's difficult. Like I know that Pogacar's got this humongous lead, but he's not made it in the big mountains. Um, you know, he he had that stage to Tino where he did make a little bit of time, um, but since then, you know, he's been staying with the other guys and you know that's probably a bit of tactics in play you know he doesn't need to go out all guns blazing um and try and 
win everything and smash everybody to smithereens because that's how you lose races really um but you know he made uh, he made an awful lot of his time in the time trial um and it kind of a few weird kind of stages in that in that opening week um the yeah like i said the only time we've really seen him push on on a mountain on a cl- proper climb is on Tina. um so it's it's really hard to say where Pogacar is um, in comparison to to the others on the really big climbs. Yeah, and uh, that brings up you know the last topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is in the last few days, we uh, one of the storylines that has emerged has been you know this the concept around releasing power data. So Pogacar has not released his power data. His coach Inigo Samilan, who we've had on our podcasts and you know has been in the Velo News universe for many many years, uh, gave an interview to Shane Stokes we published on the site where he talked about you know how he feels like Pogacar is getting unjust doubters because the dynamics of the race in the first week have been responsible for his huge lead more than anything. You know, there's no Roglic, a bunch of people crashed, whatever. But he talked about how, you know, when you release power data, that actually leads to more speculation and more questions because post, a lot of people don't really know how to read it and don't know how to understand it. But also, yeah, you know, releasing power data, that's sort of releasing the secret sauce to your rider. And if you are wanting to, uh, you know, have your rider be able to have advantages at various points in the race and not have everybody know like what size engine you're working with or some of these other secrets that they want to guard. You don't, you don't want to do that. I'm curious if you've talked to people around the scene about this and what your take is on the great debate about whether or not that ride, you know, top GC riders should release their power data. Um, I mean, well, firstly, I think, you know, cycling, cycling fans, we've all been burnt a lot by, by the sport in the past. So it's kind of understandable that people um, bring up these questions and, and, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll find, sometimes find things hard to, to believe and, and look at because of what we've seen in the past. Um, I mean, whether or not that says anything one way or another about Tade, Tade Pogacar, I can't say, but um, it's with, with power data, it's funny, like some riders, they're perfectly happy. They don't really care. Um, and people will pour over their their information. Um, and yeah, they'll find whatever they want to find. That's the thing with data. If, if you're, you can, some, you can manipulate it to look how you want it to look. And so you can make it say sometimes what you perceive rather than what it actually says. Um, so sometimes people don't want to release it because, you know, they, they're just opening opening that door, as you say, to other speculation, other comments. Um, but it's also, it's a window into what, what riders, like how riders are physiologically. And, you know, as much as they don't want people to see how strong they are, they also really don't want people to see their weaknesses and where they've struggled because... You know, if, if their rivals are able to see that, then they can use that to to their advantage and use it to kind of pick holes in in your um, defenses. So I can understand to a certain extent why um, riders and teams don't want to release that data. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's trying to hide something nefarious. They just don't want people to see it because 
it's quite detailed and it says a lot to the rivals about what they're about. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the stuff you see on Zwift where you can get sanctioned on Zwift if you hit these specific wattage per kilo numbers. And then, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, all of these uh, top pro riders were getting on a Zwift and getting like kicked off a of Zwift because their watts to kilos were way too high. And it was like, well, yeah, that's uh, Ashley Moomin Pazio. She can actually crush watts to kilos at a level that you probably haven't seen from too many people. So it's sort of like we have to adjust our vision of it. And, you know, I could I can see both sides of this argument. And there's some times where I wish that everyone would release power data just for the pure fact if we could see what some of these attacks are and like what the watts per kilo uh, at some of these points of the race is and how long they're able to hold it just for like pure gawking purposes and be like, oh my God, you know. But yeah, it's like when you take that data and you throw it out into social media and look, we've both spent plenty of time on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's just sort of this chorus of like, oh, well, he must be doping. Look at that. Look at that VAM. Look at that. You know, that's obviously a sign. Uh, so, I mean, I think my takeaway is that social media is not the place to decide whether or not someone is uh, cheating or not and probably not the place to decide how to parse um, wattage data. But if it were released, maybe putting it in the hands of experts, maybe like all things in sports, we need like a czar or like some sort of weird committee of educated elders that can look at this and like hand down judgment because that works all the time in regular life. Yeah, just hand us some sort of idiot's guide to power data. We can we can just kind of nod and look and see make it sound like we know what we're talking about. Well, uh, we're going to uh, wrap things up here and he- go hear from Brent Bookwalter. But we have two big days in the Pyrenees coming up, and my guess is that what happens over the next two stages is very much going to decide the yellow jersey fight, and may even decide the final podium placings. Although we have that final ITT on stage 20. So, uh, Saif, give me one prediction you expect to see in the next two days of racing in the mountains. Vingago will go on the the attack, and I think he will win a stage. Ooh, I like it. That's a great prediction. Um, I predict that um, the SkyTrain will emerge out of hibernation, and it will flex its muscles and drop some people, and then it will run out of steam way too far away from the finish, and poor Carapaz will not win a stage. So I'm expecting some disappointing frowny faces. But hey, um, it's the race, and so we have to see what happens. Uh, for Saib O'Shea, thank you for listening to the Vela News Podcast. Let's hear from Brent Bookwalter. All right, now back on the podcast, it's Brent Bookwalter joining us from a training camp somewhere in Spain. Uh, Brent, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Fred, and bearing with me while we get this connectivity up on the mountain here. <laughs> yes, Brent is on the side of a mountain somewhere outdoors, so if we hear any road uh, sounds in the background, bear with us, everyone. You know, European Wi-Fi, it's not like here in the U.S. where you can just, like, go into any place and they uh, and they got real strong, robust Wi-Fi. Paradise. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm right um, on a Tour de France location from uh, Sunday and um, earlier today. Well, they were driving up the section of the climb today, but um, we're in Dora, just over the, the French border, near the French side. So they uh, they raced by us on Sunday. And that brutal uh, Pyrenean stage. That's awesome. Well, that's a good segue into uh, one of the points I want to ask you about, Brent, and that's uh, Sepkus's 
stage win, you know, first American stage win in 10 years. And I'm really curious what that means to you. I mean, your career in the world tour has spanned more than a decade. And, you know, you came in with this really awesome cohort of guys into the sport. And to think that it's been 10 years since an American won a stage of the tour, how are you wrapping your head around that? Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. Doesn't doesn't feel like it's been that drought, but I guess we've uh, had some work to do. <laughs> um, it was awesome to see Sepp pull it off on um, on Sunday. I, was, I think I was there and uh, when Farrar did it 10 years ago. Um, and uh, I was just getting my, that was, you know, first Tour de France territory for me then, so still grappling with what it meant. But after having done the race a few times and seeing how hard it is just to make the selection for teams, much less be in flying form to win a stage, um, I think I have an even greater appreciation for what Sepp did yesterday. And, uh, yeah, hugely inspiring. I think the the American cycling fans have been waiting for that and wanting that. Um, people like their winners. And uh, now we got one in Sepp, so um, awesome, really inspiring stuff. I mean, when you think about that drought, I mean, it hasn't been for a lack of trying or for a lack of top riders at that end. I mean, do you think – what do you attribute it to? Do you think it's that, you know, the American riders haven't necessarily been the ones to – be you know tasked with going in the breakaways or to be out there or win races what, what do you what do you chalk that drought up to yeah there's a lot going on i think uh for a few years there the america's best riders um many of them were playing the gc role and um you know so often in that in that situation you limit stage opportunities by by riding good gcs so you know for instance the years tj was knocking around in the top five of the tour um his main priority was just not to lose time and uh, that, that sort of uh, precluded him from, from being in those opportunistic roles where he may have won a stage. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the guys like myself have, have played a largely team role and support role through their career. So, um, yeah, it all, it's, it's pretty miraculous. It all has to come together. I think uh, one, one thing I've noticed or was kind of just considering and contemplating after Sepp's win is the – the sort of personal um, personal and cultural significance that it has for him now that he he's really made a life here and his you know his partner is from Spain he resides in Andorra um, he rides for a European team not an American team um, so I think I think that can be attributed to it too the longer a rider does that and the more vested um, they are in it the more it means to him I think what we saw Sunday out of Sep was the power of of what a um, what an inspiring place and a peep set of people can also do for a performance, and um, the reality is, as Americans, we're still up against that um, from the beginning of our careers, and uh, it's it takes a lot of work to um, to create that meaning. Um, in the places uh, we race and with the people that we're, we surround ourselves with. That's funny you bring that up because the last American to do, to do that, Tyler Farrar, winning a tour stage, was definitely a guy who committed himself to like living in Belgium, being in Ghent, racing over there, bringing his family over there, assimilating to Belgian culture. You know, I mean, he talked a lot about how important that was to him. And I think you may be onto something like really committing yourself culturally to a place there's potential that it could have uh, an impact on the performance. Yeah, hundred percent. It's not something that can be faked. You can't, you can't fake that diehard passion and love. I mean, the, when you think about what it means to be going home, I think that's one of the reasons during my career, I, I performed well at the American races because just, you know, I, I'm proud of the, what I've invested into Europe and the life I've built here, but I still wouldn't say I got to the point where I was as inspired, um, 
you know, at most of the races here as I was in the U.S. Um, so it takes an even deeper level of commitment and involvement, um, and and you know, a little just uh, a little just uh, coincidental love. Um, and charm for a place to, to make that happen. And that was fully on display Sunday with that. You know, uh, I got some questions for you, Brett, about, you know, fans of the tour and us journalists back home, like the storylines that have really been popping on the site. Obviously, you know, Paul Gachar, Cavendish's Pursuit of Green, Sepkus's stage win. I'm curious, though, when you are with other world tour cyclists following the tour, watching the tour, like what are you guys talking about? What is it about the 2021 Tour de France and some of the storylines that are resonating with you guys? Oh, I think, uh, I think maybe we touched on it the last time we spoke with the, for us, the crashes are gnarly to watch um, because, you know, these are our friends and our peers and our teammates and we're, we're watching them get, um, you know, grizzled and graded against the pavement and it's just hard to watch. And I think there's a level of compassion um, as we see our peers go through that, that challenge. So um, that's definitely, definitely capturing us. And then I think the other thing that uh, kind of goes off that is just following our, not even our teammates, but our friends, you know, guys that guys like Mike Woods, who, um, you know, lives in Girona with us and um, shares a nursery school. Our kids share a nursery school, see him at pickup, um, pick up and drop off with the kids. Um, you know, that, that's a, that's a relationship and a connection and, you know, obviously want to see our teammates do well, but when we see our, our peers and our friends from over here do well, um, I think we're talking about that, you know, the Aussie guys on my team, they have, they have their sort of set of Aussie friends that they've grown up with. Um, like, you know, Ben O'Connor making headlines. Um, I think that was big news for, for a lot of these Aussie guys. So I think it's those, the connections that we have on a deeper level. Um, not just the only the wins or the um, you know the outstanding performances of the the stage wins and the GC and the green jersey that we're following. Interesting, yeah. Go Mike Woods. We've definitely been uh, cheering him on, but it is interesting to hear that. Yeah, the personal connections are oftentimes like create fan connections, like uh, you know within the peloton. Yeah, definitely. And I'd say the other thing we're following is just how brutally it's been raced. Seeing the um, seeing the battle for the time cuts. Um, and seeing the, the fragmented nature of the Gruppetto on a lot of days. Um, I know it's gotten a little more attention this year because it has been so close and Cav's been involved with it a little bit. But um, gosh, that, you know, that's, to me, that's pure suffering. Um, you know, that you're not fighting for glory back there. You're fighting just to survive and you're fighting to, to keep your dream at stake and to keep your livelihood in play. Um, and it's, it's really can be grim and sobering. So seeing seeing how hard fought some of the stages have been just to finish um you know i've i've been in some of those groups and i've i've felt the the pain and the pressure and it's it's not the same pain as seth felt flying up that last climb um on sunday that's a it's a different kind of pain and misery going out the back of the race and um nursing injuries that maybe you had from the first week and just being uncertain if you can even continue um, after you've already gone through so much just to get to the tour and, you know, into the second and third week. You know, one of the other stories that's really been resonating with people has been this conversation of whether or not top GC riders should release their power data. So people have been calling on Pogacar to do that, um, to alleviate doubts. You know, where do you come down on the whole releasing of power data? I know that, you know, some riders want to Teams want to keep it guarded because that could be the the secrets to their riders' strengths, but also weaknesses. Whereas others kind of put it out there. You know, where do you come down on that conversation? Oh, I don't know. I'm honestly, I'm not too fussed with it. <laughs> I'm. It's um, for me, it's 
it's not so much a, of a headline. I think I can see how people gravitate towards it and find it interesting. But I mean, I think what we're going to see if Project Car releases his power data is just that his power is higher than everyone else's, um, <laughs> which is you know what we see out on the road when he drops everyone. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the sort of inherent challenge in that is that the you know all the power meters are going to read a little differently. Um, some guys are calibrating their power meters before the race. Some aren't. Some people are doing the zero offset and calibration during the race when they're coasting on a downhill. Um, so I think there can be a fair amount of variance in power meter to power meter. We see that even working with, you know, the same, you know, from my training bike to my race bike or year to year, there's a bit of a challenge following there. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I think it's, it, it can provide some value and interest to the fans. Um, but I, I understand if someone wants to wants to keep it private too, and I don't think it's really going to change much in terms of a. Uh, it shouldn't change much in how we're looking at his performance. No, no, I appreciate that. That's that's good perspective, and sort of the perspective you don't get from people arguing on Twitter about the concept where everything is either just one way or the other. They just want what they can't have. If if you give them the power meter data, then they want something else they can't have. <laughs> Um, last one for you, Brett. You know, I've definitely been uh, really swept up in the progress of this young Danish kid, Vingago, in, you know, first Tour de France. Not a ton of expectation. Wasn't coming in as a big GC leader, but coming in and real make, making a, a big push. And I'm curious if you have any memories or experiences of dynamics like this playing out in the past where, like, young guy comes in, not, you know, on paper is going to be riding for someone else, but then kind of gets thrust into the limelight and, and really steps up to the plate. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm troubled to, um, to pull one out of my head right now, but I think, we, I think we see it time and again, and I think it kind of showcases the power of um, belief without expectation. I think um, you see with a lot of these Grand Tour favorites, they're under so such a big burden of stress and pressure, and especially these young guys now. Just the level of the young guys just keeps getting higher and higher, and more and more is expected of them right from the get-go. Um, so it's it's a bit of a perfect storm to have all that ability and have the belief, um, and then you have the opportunity and, and step into it, um, which he has clearly done. I think. He probably definitely wasn't expecting to be riding up in the GC at the tour this year, but uh, clearly a show that he's capable. And um, that's a testament to the depth of these teams. You know, I think people forget that too, is when, when these, um, you know, winning and, and podium GC tour rides happen, um, they're more often than not, there's multiple guys on the team that are actually at that level to ride and they're just putting it all on the line and sacrificing it for a leader. Um, whether it's in the race or whether it's just in the context of the whole season. Oh, that's that's really interesting, and that puts Vingago's success into great perspective, Brent. Like, you know, there's a there's probably a number of other Vingagos out there in the peloton who could be doing what he's doing but aren't getting that opportunity. And likewise, the next time we see him at the Tour de France or another Grand Tour, he's going to have a ton of expectation on him and how he deals with that pressure and those dynamics. Uh, it's just it's going to be different. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. I think the the Giro last year was a great example of that as well. We had this sort of non traditional season and this um, you know tumultuous Giro play out, and all of a sudden you're left with two guys battling for the podium that um, you know wouldn't you wouldn't have thought of before. And those guys are still um, they're still you know operating at a seriously high level now, um, but. Uh, in a, in a different context. Um, now as, you know, Teo being a grand tour winner, um, 
when he shows up to a race now, it's he's uh, viewed differently and operating in a different way than than he was when he won the Giro last year. Well, Brent, hey, I really appreciate you making time for us again. And um, again, wishing you the best of luck as the season and your final season in the World Tour uh, winds down here. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be following along you guys' coverage of the tour. And um, yeah, looking forward to getting the rest of the season going and then uh, going on to the next phase. All right, Brent, we'll let you get back to it. Thanks again. Man.